88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Raina Cohen. Welcome to Frame to Frame. I'm Raina Cowan, and I'm going to talk about the legacy of Bay Area filmmaker Barbara Hammer. She died last week uh, in New York. She lived for a number of years in the Bay Area before relocating to New York, and she was a pioneer in many ways. She broke the rules and opened even more eyes to the possibilities of what film and media could be. There are many ways to describe her. She was adventurous, challenging, edgy, self-confident, and she raised her voice without compromise. She blazed a trail both in her film work and in her political work, often with the two being interconnected. And she challenged the form and the content at once, always with a sense of humor. And at the same time, she was principled, ethical, and was a tireless fighter for justice. Even at the end, she tried to change the New York state law of having the freedom to end one's own life when you have a terminal illness. I interviewed her 27 years ago in 1992 when she was just finishing her first feature-length feature entitled Nitrate Kisses. It was an experimental film, and it looks at the repression and marginalization of LGBT communities starting in 1904, that the interview really captured an element of who she was. So I thought I'd play part of this interview and show what she knows about history and to honor her work and her memory. So here's an interview with Barbara Hammer. This is your first feature-length piece. How did you decide to do it on this particular topic? Well, I worked on a uh, film in 1990 called Sanctus, which was based on the moving x-rays medical photography by Dr. James Sibley Watson. And while I was working on that 20-minute experimental film, I found out that there were 17 cans of nitrate film uh, outtakes from Lawton Sodom, 1933, also by Dr. Watson and his queer companion co-director, Melville Weber, that had never been looked at since the 30s. And I was alerted to this fact, so the next grant that I wrote was to be able to look at these outtakes and use them to reinterpret Genesis 19 or the myth of Sodom and Gomorrah in contemporary light, in the light of AIDS, in the light of a gay positive uh, image today. Then that grew into, well, what about women? Where are they? And these are gay male images, and they're well-preserved, but women's aren't. And I was on tour in Europe using a Super 8 camera that I borrowed in Berlin and Hamburg and Paris, and I tried to collect whatever kind of images I could of ordinary women rather than the extraordinary left-bank women that we know of in Paris, like Barnes and Stein. So I looked for lesbians in concentration camps and in uh, former East Berlin with the burnt-out buildings. And, of course, that kind of imagery then is quite different than the 35-millimeter male footage. The women's footage is shot in Super 8. It's um, sparse, just like our history is sparse. But that's what I wanted to alert us all to, not just gays and lesbians, but all marginalized people, all ordinary people, that everything in our life is important for historians to recontextualize exactly what is history. And if we keep it and preserve it and form archives and have this material in archives, there'll be material for biographers and historians in the future. And we won't just have the history of great men. 
Why the title Nitrate Kisses? Well, the original footage from Lawton Sodom was shot on nitrate film. And in the 30s, this was a, a beautiful black and white film that was used by all cinematographers. It's highly um, flammable and explosive and very dangerous to use. And I felt making a gay and lesbian sex positive film in the 90s was also very explosive. So it refers back to the historic footage from the 30s that I used as well as a contemporary sense of something that's not used anymore and that is dangerous to use. When you were conceptualizing the film, it seems like that there's so many stories that have not been heard before. How did you pick and choose which ones really spoke to both your story and the context of lesbians and gays in the history of society? Well, one only has so much time in life, and so I have to say that out of the phone calls, if somebody said yes, I was over there with my tape recorder, and most, most often everybody that gave me an interview is in the film. I just happened, when I was in Hamburg, to have the apartment of my host, who was um, a young woman who's just graduating from the University of Hamburg, and she'd written a paper on the accounts of lesbians in concentration camps by heterosexual women. So she gave me all the data that I used for half of the, the Berlin and, or the German section. And I just interviewed at her, her at her home before I left. When I then arrived in Berlin, I told my host I was involved in this project that actually had just started. And one of them was very interested in lesbian history in uh, Ahima Berlaga. And she also works in um, free radio in Berlin. And so she had a nice little Sony tape recorder and she tape recorded her experiences uh, or her research into lesbian culture. And she took me on the tour into East Berlin where we searched for the bar on Mulakstrasse, a bar that during the 30s was available for lesbians and prostitutes and gay men and Jews. And uh, her story then is, is on the film about um, what happened in this bar from the research that she'd done. So I gathered as I found, you know, sometimes by coincidence and when I reached New York, I realized I didn't have any American stories. So I went to a program that Joan Nessel, who is a co-founder of the Lesbian History Archive in New York City, was giving. And there were a lot of old dykes there. And I got names, and I, I was taping Joan also for, for use in the film. And I asked afterwards if there's anybody in the audience that might have my a story to give me. And I got some names. Some of those women withdrew later. Some recommended others. And, you know, at one period, I was off on my bicycle in Manhattan every day with uh, my little portable tape recorder taping these stories and I just found them extremely rich and I knew that I know that there's lots more I just hope that these are samples and representatives of Maria Suarez is, was born in 1904 and she was the oldest woman that I was able to find as a radio person and not a film person there's something kind of comical about saying that you as a filmmaker, video maker, are out there with your tape recorder instead of out with your camera gathering information. 
It is ironic, but, you know, in a way, maybe radio will be the preservation for most of our stories because it's inexpensive, it's portable, uh, it doesn't cost a lot of money. I didn't want to have talking heads. I didn't wasn't interested in doing a traditional documentary film. I wasn't interested in representing these women to um, tell stories that were unique. I hoped to, that they, they would talk about situations in the bars before Stonewall or in cross-dressing, how they bound their breasts how they threw away their girdles, how they had two sets of clothes. All these different issues would apply to lots of women during that time. So it is ironic that the imagery are the burnt-out homes of the Oakland firestorm, you know, or crumpled newspaper in the corner, and true, some pulp novels, um, some lesbian archival material, but mostly it's uh, empty space almost that you see when, and it's the stories, the oral history that is has the wealth and the richness to it. I think when a radio person does interviews, there's a fullness and a richness, and when a film person would do those same kind of interviews on a tape, I wonder if it means anonymousness. Well, I didn't want to make it anonymous, but I did edit so that it was like a collective voice. In other words, I edited the four women in New York stories around subjects, um, lesbian bashing in Prospect Park or in the village at the time, coming out stories, uh, being in uh, their professional lives in the service, or uh, one woman who was excluded from Rosie the Riveter because uh, because she was a lesbian. And her story uh, working in the shipyards and, and fighting for women and getting the union to represent them. Um, so anonymous, no. A collective voice, yes. The other part about radio, I needless to say I'm fixated on this, is that one can create the images of, in one's own head about the stories and what, what the visuals are that go with it. And as a filmmaker or video maker, your job is to really create those visuals in some way. And I, I wonder what it's like starting with a tape and then from there creating a multi-layered uh, image approach. Well, I was interested in collaging and the constructivist approach. Um, I guess you'd call it postmodern today, but the uh, Russians were doing it back in the 30s when they were drawing material from all different kinds of sources and trying to say that images can be found everywhere. They can be found in a grocery bill. They can be a, a billboard. Uh, it could be a sheet of music. All this is part of lesbian culture. But really, I didn't have any and I couldn't find any and the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society um, is receiving the, a lot of the proceeds as for a benefit when we when we do um, the premiere at the Castro. And my hope is that by having this film, which is uh, has quite a bit of lesbian lesbian material in it, that more women will give their material in their boxes. They'll save their love letters as well as their um, ledger for their housing account or whatever they have. Their business material too. Uh, to the archives so that we'll have more lesbian material. But here in San Francisco, where I was doing the production on the film, there's very little material. So uh, do you think the images are historical images? Uh, or do you think that they're images that you res that you looked at them now and created the context for them? Oh, it, 
They are definitely not historical images except for the pulp novels. I would say that what I was trying to talk about is the process of making history. Not, I wasn't trying to recapture a particular story or recapture or make history. I think that's another film. It's a lot of films, in fact, and a lot of different people are working on that right now. What I was trying to show is that we have to read in the margins, between the lines, that the images that we're searching for are almost non-existence. The the emulsion might, of the film might be eroded. Uh, if we look into a concentration camp, there's a bricked-up wall. We really can't see into the toilets like the the heterosexual woman who gave us the account of the two lesbians kissing on each other's laps in the toilet. We can't see that anymore. I didn't want to recreate a docudrama and recreate the images that matched that accounting. In other words, I wanted to show how hard it is to have a history, how many holes and gaps and frustrations we have. So you look at burnt out buildings and, and empty windows and cellars. Uh, actually, those are the cellars of Hitler in uh, Potsdamer Platz in Berlin. Uh, these are the places where our history is gone. How did you decide on the structure for this film? <laughs> what a question. I really found it in five or six months in the editing room. Um, nine to five hours, Monday through Friday. Um, very hot and sweaty work over at the Film Art Foundation where I rented a, a six plate where you can see the picture and you can put sound with it. And I just found it. I took out everything I had. I didn't have a structure. For a while, I thought it was two films. It was going to be a lesbian film and a gay male film. I found the structure through the editing, and I wanted to make a longer film. I wanted to enter another kind of a festival, another kind of format for my films. I was tired of going around showing a series of shorts, always with the last one being the most contemporary one and the, the of most interest to me. Uh, I wanted to reach a different audience. So I worked and worked and worked and finally felt that I could put these films together. And actually, they're in sections. So you have a French, what used to be a French section. <laughs> Most of the French part got taken out. But you have a... Um, United States women's section, you have a, a United States men's section, both of these from about the 30s, and you have a Berlin section and a Hamburg German section from the 30s, and then you conclude with a section from the archives and with a little bit of French uh, material thrown in. So, in a way, I worked on it in sections then, and then reconstructed the sections after I had a small viewing, where some people told me they thought that the older women making love and those stories were the most engaging, and that I should start with that rather than maybe the more condensed editing collage, more maybe more difficult to read, more exciting for me personally to make, of the Berlin section, the German section of the film. Well, you're, you're basically an experimental filmmaker, and you've received a lot of awards and recognition for doing that, and yet this film in some ways is more accessible in some ways than most of your work. What was that process like for you to, to change your very structure at the same time as going from a shorter format to a longer format? 
Well, I went to the new museum in Los, in uh, New York City about a year ago, and Linda Montano was finishing up, I think, her six-year um, art project where she sat in the window once a month and wore different clothes and read your palm. She wore different colors for every month. And I had my palm read by her, and she said that my next work should be... I think I told her that I had a beginning production grant. She said, your work should be to give something back to the community. So that clicked with me, and I thought now my work has to be for a larger, for our lesbian gay community, which is under siege again. That's another reason why I attempted to make a more community-based work than a personal work. And I also um, felt strongly that um, I wanted to return to a political identity statement. A lot of not all of my work, but some of the work in the past 10 years has been about other kinds of issues, issues of aging, of perception, of um, different manners of photography. But I wanted to make a lesbian comeback film. And I wanted to pick up where I had stopped in some ways in the 70s. And when I talk like this, other people say, oh, Barbara, you've always been... (laughs) Those threads have always been in your work. Um, But to me, it was a lesbian comeback movie. It was a film for the gay and lesbian community in the 90s at a time that we're under siege. It was a fighting film. It's a fight back to the right. And the process for you in making something that that is so different from what you've made before well it's a challenge in that way experimental work has always been you there's a problem and it's a problem you haven't encountered before and you tackle it so whether it was with the optical printer or trying to film in a nursing home to me this was a new problem how to make a long film how to make a film more accessible and how to work by constructing without a script, but making something after I collected everything. And that satisfied the creator in me. That was enough. And I think I would like to do another long film. Now, I th- it seems when I look at my little 10-minute films, I just want them to marry each other <laughs> and be, get six of them together and make 60 minutes. It seems that the information that you gathered through the six months in the editing room is something that most of us don't have. We don't have, it's not accessible. I mean, in terms of the stories by women and that you actually sort of picked and chose. And I just wondered sort of the process of, uh, of how we can all know more. Well, I was lucky to find out about the old Dyke Awards, which is something that we can all go to in uh, another year when they'll be happening. And when Pat Bond died, um, her money was used to give these awards to outstanding older women in the community. And I went and taped that, and there I found a lot of old lesbians. And there's also an organization called Old Lesbians for Change. And I went to a dance. In fact, that's in the film that they have. And there's a network now across the United States of old lesbians for change and two women were taking off on in a van to connect these people one by one um, as they drove through across the United States so there is a lot more visibility right now and we've taken back the word old to recontextualize it to be a descriptive word not a negative word and I think that as I've gotten older the ageism has I've met it um, and, uh, and this is one way that I'm confronting it 
When you're telling different people's stories, though, there's something about, we're talking about, even though there is one community, the lesbian gay community, there is really hundreds of communities, hundreds of different voices, uh, not only the invisibility of the elderly, but there's so many people who aren't really recognized. And it just seems so difficult to come up with a voice, a, a comeback voice that can speak to so many. You know, it hasn't had a public screening yet. In fact, it hasn't been screened um, as a film by by anybody except me in checking it. So about 15, 20 people have seen it as a video, most of them reviewers. Um, I don't know if it's going to speak to the communities, and you're right, we are pluralistic. There is an A community. I hope that it will speak to all audiences. I hope that it will speak to straight people I know one straight programmer has seen it and felt that the sexuality in it was so tender and so warm that he felt very embracing of the lesbian and gay community after seeing it. I don't know yet. There are a million voices and a million stories, more than that, to be told. And as an individual and an independent, I work on those that have interested me at the moment and try to shape them given the time that I had to work on this, which was one year. I had to work pretty quickly. I couldn't do an overview. I didn't have anybody helping me. You know, like Peter Adair, when he works, he'll go out and he'll collect maybe, I'm going to take a guess at, you know, say, a hundred interviews. I think he did a hundred tape interviews before he then shot in video for Word is Out film or video, I don't remember. Um, I, I didn't have anybody to go with me. You know, it was me on my bicycle and making the phone calls and making the arrangements. I mean, the money I got for this film is, it's, I spent very little for a 67-minute film. It's because I did everything. So you have to work with what you've got and with the energy that you have to put out. I couldn't let this film go on for two years because I have to start teaching again. You know, I had one year to work in. So that's another interesting thing about a project or the limitations that set in. You know, I mean, some people work on film for five years and they will interview 100 people, but they're also working with um, fifty dollars to $100,000 budgets. I'm not criticizing you. I mean, I, I, I just think that it's very interesting to me that that you are a personal filmmaker and yet you probably haven't ever had to think about the audience in the way. And, and I think that making a longer film and making a film for a community that the audience has to be somehow sitting there with you. And I think that must be very, maybe crowded, maybe, maybe fun, maybe, maybe insightful. I don't know. You know, I think maybe the, the motivation still is personal. And as I've gotten older and I have my own archives that are sitting there in boxes, not in, you know, in, in degradable material. I've collected every love letter I've ever received and every review I've ever had. So I, I really have a lot of material. And I see other generations coming up with different issues, and I, I don't want to be left out. Part of it, it comes from that kind of primary instinct that um, is about my history. Even though the film, I didn't want to make another autobiographical film. That was just too much. But maybe by looking at other people's stories, I could make all of us aware what the processes of history are and how important they are. There was something about the regionality that you were presenting in terms of the United States and different parts of Europe 
that together they seem to create a whole. And I think oftentimes when people are making film, they'll either talk about one group who came from one spot and wound up in another spot. But it's really rare to have sort of four areas covered that are really the same time. And yet the reality in all those areas were so different. So different during culture. I mean, if anything, the film would miss, you know, Asian, Asian, African, um, Indonesian cultures and what happens to lesbian and gay history there. There you're going to have a blank screen just about. I mean, that's, I don't know, I haven't done the research, but I would guess that. But being a peripatetic and a traveler of sorts and having been to Berlin quite a few times in Paris and New York and, you know, and San Francisco, my home, there's the same story in different ways. I mean, even though we didn't have the Nazi period, we have the censorship of the government telling artists what to make and what they can't make. And we have pe- we have self-censorship that gets built in, you know, and... You know, when you try to get the stories of the lesbians during the 30s and they leave, they won't talk about it. We wonder about what we're doing as artists in our own self-censorship. But I think that actually there is a supportive, um, not backlash isn't the right word, front lash, (laughs) a supportive group who are on the panels that are giving money to those who have been oppressed and who have been... um, denied the federal funding that they've been first granted. So I think that the risky projects right now, in fact, are getting funded. When I was watching it, my fear was that as the film ended, that the tape would be destroyed and that I would say, no, not again, not again. You know, and I just mean metaphorically, you know, the concept of that creating something and recapturing something and that it flees away, you know? <laughs> or... <huh? laughs> Oh, that's so frightening to me, you know, and I've always been frightened during the making of the film because of the funding and the sexually explicit material in it. I had to go through a long period of really being afraid and then finally just getting over that and going to work. You know, pretty soon it was just rolling up the sleeves and working. But all kinds of sexual expression can be denied, too, within our own communities. Some of us say, oh, this is the right way to make love, and that isn't. You know, and right away we're doing a censoring. And if those images aren't allowed also for, to be preserved in a way, the film, the film could be taken off the shelves. It could be taken away from the projection booths. And film is fragile, Hardly, this film costs so much money. One print. Now, I'm not used to paying. It cost over $2,000 for a 67-minute film. Um, the first print, which is always more expensive. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about now. I don't even want to send that in the mail. You know, people are going to pay for me to travel because I don't want it to be destroyed. I mean, it's, I want the projector to be cleaned every time. You know, I want the best preservation possible. I want the outtakes to be there for somebody else to look at how I censored my own material. There's that too. You know, every filmmaker's a censor when you're there at the editing bench. What didn't I want to show? Maybe somebody will look at that in the 200s, not 200 years. You showed four couples making love in the film. How did you convince them to be in the film? And how did you choose which ones to show? No one I asked refused. I chose 
people that I, in terms of the men, they're both filmmakers in the East Village. They're people I know. They make films that celebrate gay male bodies. Uh, I wanted to have a black man in the film. Um, he's the friend of mine. I felt comfortable with them. And they thought about it a lot. They took a couple weeks to decide. I paid them for their acting. And um, it's curious. They've been partners for many years, and they didn't have a condom in the house. So I was walking down. I had to walk down to the corner store to buy condoms because I wanted to have them in the film. The, the uh, I call them the SM couple, the uh, young white lesbians who uh, dress in leather and chains. I saw them in costume at a woman's bookstore in Manhattan and approached them. And a lot of people who exhibit with costumes already are, don't mind. They're exhibitionists somewhere or another. They're very excited and they, they're dying to have the film come out. They want me to make postcards of it. I mean, <laughs> and I said, now who in this community would be sexual in front of a camera? And people recommended Francis Lorraine and Sally Binford, who both agreed and feel very strongly that we need to have more images of older women making love. And of course, the fourth, the fifth couple that I didn't get were the older men. As men have watched this film, the few have seen it, the gay male attention to the body is so important and they thought it'd be quite revolutionary to show um, an aged body that maybe didn't have the fitness of the 20s to it but had the distinguished wrinkles and the important sags of the 60s <laughs> but um, I was through with the film by then that's for someone else to do this has been an interview with Barbara Hammer uh, she just died after living a long fruitful life being an experimental filmmaker and I wanted to honor her my name is Raina Cowan and I'll be back next month talking about film thanks for listening Nick Estes has written a book on indigenous resistance in North America. He includes other movements against occupation and state repression in the U.S. and around the world. A citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe, Nick is an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico. His new book is titled, Our History is the Future. Joining Nick will be Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. That'll be March 28th, a Thursday evening at 7.30. This is a KPFA benefit happening at co-sponsor St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. There's wheelchair access. Tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive indie bookstores, including Pegasus Books, Books Incorporated, East Bay Books, Mrs. Dalloway's Moe's, and Walden Pond Bookstore. That's March 28th. Nick Estes and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA in 